everyone and welcome to another fun-filled, action-packed episode of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm Troy Waller and next to me, as usual, in the virtual space, my friend and dear co-host, Brian McDowell. How are you, Brian? I am good. We are next to each other in the virtual space. Or if we were to take the fairly new freeway that connects our houses, we're 18 minutes away. Isn't that right, Troy? Yeah, that's right. It is 18 minutes according to the Maps app. I don't use the one starting with G. I use the one starting with A. And actually, now that I've got the other car, I use the one starting with T. And I don't know which is best, but they all say pretty much 18 minutes from Brian's house. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Google man and the Google says 18 minutes. So, you know, I think they're aligned. Well, there you go. So, Brian, did you want to introduce our guest today? Because we've got someone quite exciting on today. We've always got people exciting, but but today is is another exciting one. So we've got Maggie Rose. So Maggie's an author, writer, director, producer, and was a writer on Netflix, Arrested Development. And ironically, many fundamentalists that we refer to have Arrested Development. So previously, she served as a writer uh, and on the Will Arnett Star of Flaked for Netflix and has set up projects at HBO, Showtime, all the big names. But what we want to talk about today as well is Maggie's book, Sin Bravely, a memoir of spiritual disobedience. We love disobedience. Um, and the book was named NPR's best books of the year list. So Maggie, welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm happy to be here. And I see that I think you have that on your sweater. Yes, we have merch. Oh! And- Oh, see in in Australia, like I know in the states, you call them sweatshirts. We call them hoodies. So it's it's so a sweatshirt with a hood on it. We're very basic in Australia, so we say <laughs> it's a hoodie. <laughs> it is so very cool to have you here today, Maggie, and the good friend of the podcast, uh, Emily John Garcias. Um, she referred you to us and we thought we would love to have a chat so you know here's here's Emily you know connected to Hollywood and she said hey I got a Hollywood friend Maggie so welcome (laughs) Maggie we're we're really looking forward to your your story and you were generous enough to send Troy and I a copy of Sim Bravely Uh, Troy is well into it I must admit I had a few things sidetrack me this week but I am definitely into it and it is such a good read it grabs you from the first page, doesn't it, Troy? Oh, very much. You know, I read a lot of these books and I would never say this about anyone's book in particular, but oftentimes I'm quite bored and I think, oh yeah, whatever, this one grabbed me. This is sort of deconstruction meets girl interrupted <laughs> and, I, and I'm loving every minute of it. So yeah, kudos to you for this book. Oh, well, thank you. It was hard one. <laughs> Maggie, you've been previously described as a rabid born-again Christian who would assault innocent bystanders with the message of the good news and salvation. Does this mean that you were, in fact, a teenage fundamentalist? It does. I was a teenage fundamentalist, and I did it hard. I did not do it slightly. Uh, My parents were actually more modest uh, than I was. I, I really took it and ran with it. And, you know, I used the word assault, but I, I kind of felt like that, that was what we did. You know, we, a whole crew of us teenagers would go to a shopping mall or a bowling alley and we would let people know rather aggressively that they had a best friend and that best friend's name was Jesus. <laughs> Yep. So you sound more like a Troy kind of Christian than a Brian kind of Christian because I was the evangelist. I was the one out there pushing it hard, really believing it. Whereas Brian was a bit shy with his faith. I I was definitely someone that Jesus was swishing around in his mouth of lukewarmness and about to spill out. I was. was, Oh yeah, I was one of them, Maggie. I found it really interesting that reading your book that, and certainly reading the stuff online that. You did come from a more moderate house, but from a very young age, you were pretty full on. And a lot of that definitely um, fundamentalist Christian self-loathing. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. Well, you know, yes. I, I The lukewarm thing, I made, a, I made a groan. I made a sound because I was so worried about being a lukewarm Christian that I that I didn't believe enough and that 
I was ashamed. You know, there was that verse, um, approved workmen are not ashamed. Uh, and that would be translated to us as if you're ever embarrassed about talking about Jesus, God's going to be embarrassed of you on judgment day and he's going to spew you out of your mouth. So I feel like my my kind of heat <laughs> was a compensation. It was out of a fear of being lukewarm or not believing enough. You certainly didn't come across as lukewarm in your in your book, Maggie, and and you you would have frightened the hell out of me because Troy and I we've known each other thirty plus years, and we go back to those days where we both were definitely fundamentalist Christians, but Troy lived that out, and like I think similar to yourself, and that always used to frighten me. And I think what was behind that was I was quite embarrassed by some of it because maybe I was a bit too aware of a the cognitive dissonance they had to employ to believe a lot of the the stuff. And I, I wrestled with that, I think, and I was like, oh, shit, how can I actually talk to people about this when I'm not totally convinced myself that it's all legit and real? Oh, so I think I might be more in your camp because I felt that, you know, there's there was one time I wrote about it in my book. I was with a boy that I liked, this kid named James Kane. And we were on a beach trip. We were out by Lake Michigan. And I was thinking how much I liked this kid. And then I was like, <gasps> if I really liked him, I'd be witnessing, wouldn't I? And it felt horribly embarrassing. It was like the last thing I wanted to do was to tell some boy that he should think about his sins, but it was like, I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to push through the embarrassment. Yep, Maggie, I was totally resonating with that because in between, I, I was in between churches at one stage and I met this girl and later when I rejoined the Assemblies of God and I started going to Bible college, the whole bit, I actually bumped into her and I took her as my date to my Assemblies of God Bible College end of year dinner. And she was just not a Christian at all. And she was she was model gorgeous, right? She was really gorgeous. And at the end of the night, and, and I could tell, you know, she liked me. It was all cool to, you know, taking her to the Bible College dinner. I don't think she quite got it. I hadn't quite alienated her yet. But then I felt like I need to witness to her because there's no point going any further in a relationship with a girl unless she's a Christian. And I remember just witnessing to her and she's just looking at me and then at the end she goes okay like uh, that to me and that was the end of that but like you I I did it because I felt it was the right thing to do but also I walked away with a degree of self-righteousness from that thinking well that's fine you know I've, I've done the right thing by God and you know that whole God being ashamed of me I'm not going to be ashamed of God for sure. So Maggie let's wind it back a little bit tell us about you're growing up. Like, what did your household look like? What did your version of Christianity look like? And was there conflict in some sort of way with your parents with that? Because they were more moderate and you were certainly a lot more full on. What did growing up look like for Maggie Rowe? Well, I, I've always said that I think I would have had an easier time extricating myself from fundamentalism if my parents were not so wonderful, um, if they were clear hypocrites, if they were idiots, if they were, you know, but they weren't. They were wonderful, logical Christians. Now, the thing that I was never able to understand is they were able to stomach this idea of hell. and. To me, it's the abominable proposition. It's the unspeakable. And it was so horrific to me uh, uh, that it just propelled me to try to make sure that I was really saved. 
And I think other people have had this experience where it's like, did the magic prayer work? Did I really say it right? Did I believe it sincerely? Did I get all the parts? I admitted my sin. I uh, attested to my faith in this uh, historical event. I uh, resolved to start a new, you know, any anything. I, I, I said the thing about accepting him as my personal savior. When I get the person, you know, it was like, I tried to make sure that I got every component of it right. And my parents we're just like, yeah, you got it. You're fine. You're good. You're fine. Like it, it worked. You're all good. <laughs> but I was like, how could you possibly know? This is, there's no certificate that comes in the mail. Like I, you know, and I've seen them. I had seen my parents be wrong about things before, <laughs> you know, episode of MASH. They thought that Hawkeye Pierce, that was one that had B.J. Honeycutt in it. And it didn't. It was Strapper John. They were wrong. They were wrong. So I knew that there was, they were not infallible. Um, and so I couldn't trust them. And I had, you know, before I worried about anybody else, I was worried about myself. And I remember I had the Ryrie Study Bible, which was a Bible that had four different translations side by side. And I would just comb through the verses uh, to try to find assurances of my salvation. And, but then go right into the scary ones and try to somehow assure myself that I had hit all the points and that I had avoided this fate. But uh, my parents could never understand the extent that I went to to try to assuage my fears. Did the sheep and the goats parable absolutely do your head in? Oh, fucking sheep and the goats. Oh, it's just a horrible idea that there so many horrible ideas I realize in retrospect that there are just it's that there's some that and the goats that are going to be thrown out and depart from me. I do not know you and things being separated and how to, you know, I had this image of me being separated and the end times from my parents and, uh, through the years, the idea of the way I was taught original sin, that I was innately bad. What? <laughs> you know, what's ironic though, like sheep are they're such dumb animals. They are stupid. Like you can chase one to the point where it will run and run and run until it dies. It will fall over and die. Whereas goats, they're adaptive. They can eat pretty much anything. They can climb just about any terrain. So it's a really shit parable. Sorry, Jess. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you fucked right. one up. <laughs> Good um, point. Yeah. I needed a rewrite. He was like, ah, should be sheeps and goats, sheeps and goats. I don't know. What do we have here that we can reference? Ah, should be, ah I'll just go with it. Yeah. So basic. I know. I, I had um, certainly a higher a higher view of him back then, but now I'll look back on it. It's really interesting. Like You talk about that you know, you're not assured of your salvation. And I don't think that is something that is terribly unusual within fundamentalism. Certainly the world that Troy and I um, were in as, as fundamentalists, you saw and you had invites constantly to come up and rededicate your life to Jesus. Oh. Constantly. So you were seeking that assurance. So I don't think it was something you were certainly alone in. However, the, the, the complication for me with you when reading your story is that's not a household you were surrounded by. That wasn't a view, as you've just said, that your parents held. So where did that come from for you? What was it that drove that, uh, that, that certainly you know, that self-loathing in some way, it was a guilt-soaked existence, the the one that you're bad and only Jesus in you is something that can save you. Where did that come from? What's your, what's your thinking around that? So I wonder, so I have, I'm of two minds, which are never supposed to be, according to Christianity, um, but I'm of two minds. One mind says, yes, there was some sort of pathology some sort of OCD that was present that found fertile ground in Christianity and it was able to flourish. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that I think I was just 
very, very rational. And I looked at it head on and I followed the conclusion through to the end. So I don't have the experience of ever feeling particularly guilty. I don't have, like, so I guess that's, I guess I'm answering, I'm thinking out loud. I, I don't have the experience of self-loathing, I don't think. I had the experience of a maniacal lunatic running the universe who was far crueler and um, uh, sicker than anyone I'd ever encountered in my life or imagined. Uh, yeah. One of, one of the things that we find as Pentecostals, or I should say we found as Pentecostals, was the idea that you would have these other spiritual experiences that would confirm your initial prayer, right? Oh. So speaking in tongues, for example, was a big one. But we had, we've had we had people on, one in particular, a guy here in Australia wrote, wrote a book about growing up in a Pentecostal group. And he was saying that he didn't believe in the tongues. And so he was told that he was saved because he spoke in tongues, but it was a sort of sort of noise. Oh. And he was listening to his brother going like this and thinking, that's not tongues. So, so that's not the answer either, because none of these experiences, unless you're seeing someone with, you know, cancer falling out of their head or, you know, arms growing back or whatever, we, we, we can't even see these miracles as any more than oftentimes just coincidences and, and things like that. So were you doing that though? Were you looking for ongoing experiences to confirm your initial prayer? Totally, totally. And I remember the verse that the comforter, the Holy Spirit will come to assure you of your salvation. And the problem was that each doubt that I had about my salvation meant, well, the comforter's not comforting me. <laughs> He's not assuring me of anything. And so the absence of assurance fueled the whole fire. And the, you know, I, there was one pastor, I remember, uh, that I went and sought out his advice. And, uh, you know, I told him, oh, I'm having all these doubts about my salvation. And his reply was that if I had really been saved, that I wouldn't have these concerns. And that just put the whole thing in an added pressure cooker. You know. Well, there was contradictions though in that, wasn't there? Because you had some people saying, if you weren't saved, you wouldn't be worried that you weren't right. saved. And and other people are saying, well, if you were saved, you'd know that you were saved. And so there was a real contradiction in that. I remember reading that, and especially the one where the pastor says to you, well, you wouldn't be thinking this way. And I was thinking, you ass, what a horrible what a thing horror. to say to this poor girl. <laughs> trying to it's like get some light get some air into my mind i was just like in a dungeon door and it seems like you were really driven by that dare i say anxiety or ocd the two are probably most definitely interconnected because as a child i mean here you are you're doing these you're entering scripture memorization competitions like you were really trying to reinforce within your life these these words and trying to get it into you that you know you must have just been driven by this fear surely over and over and over yeah it was a real motivating factor and the you know the image that i always have of it that's like i feel like it like crystallizes it it's kind of like the gestalt of it or you know but uh i remember as a kid that me and my friends were spinning around on the lawn until we got dizzy and fell down like you know so it was kind of free it's almost like drunk it's almost bacchanalian in some way you know we're like Whoa! and uh i remember falling down one time and then just feeling gutted and being like what am i doing what am i doing this frivolous activity i'm spinning around. i need to be there are eternal concerns i need to be focused on and i like went home and i went back to that Ryrie study Bible, but you know, I I think of it as that kind of that motion of like woo to nope, get back to the book, you know, like figure out the grave matter, you know. Hey guys, we'd love to hear from our audience. So if you'd like to connect with I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, then visit our website 
iwasateenagefundamentalist.com or find our Linktree URL in the show notes. We also have a thriving community of listeners on Facebook who offer peer support and a shitload of funny memes and things of interest to former teenage fundies just like you. You can find us on Facebook or see the links in our show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. So Maggie, this sort of came to a head for you and... Am I right? It was a movie theater yes. that you were in and you had this experience. What? And forgive me if this is not the the right language, but it seemed like some sort of break. Yeah, it was. I, my anxiety increased so much. It was so crazy. It was a film by Akira Kurosawa. It's the film Dreams. And since then, I've read that in the film, he wanted to explore fears of the afterlife. But there is nothing in it that would give you that impression from watching it directly. It's a young girl in a garden running around, and then it's a guy in a snowstorm. Nobody mentions hell, but it tapped into something in my unconscious. And as one guy is slowly freezing to death, I thought, oh my God, did he accept Jesus as his personal savior? Like this fictional... Japanese <laughs> snowscape wanderer. And I was like, holy shit, is he saved? Um, and I had the, just this rush of anxiety. And then I heard this screaming sound in the theater and realized it was coming from my own mouth. And I just ran out of that theater and out into the cold Ithaca snow, uh, but something broke in my mind that night. And I, I admitted myself uh, to this uh, evangelical psychological facility shortly thereafter, that, that it snapped. You're being very kind in your description there, Maggie, because I think you referred to it as a born-again nuthouse. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a range of... Now, the thing about the place, there were so many things that were problematic. I mean, the, the slogan, uh, which was psychiatry where the Bible comes first, which just really said it. <laughs> um, psychological health was not its uh, major aim. It, it was up there. Um, but while I was there, the reason I try to give it a little bit of props is, uh, well, to begin with, not one person while I was there expressed any concern over my salvation. Nobody was like my, you know, youth leader that was like, if you're worried, there's a problem. Everyone was like, nope, this is scrupulosity. Martin Luther suffered from it. We, we know about this. You are fine. You are fine. So they didn't, they weren't able to dispel the whole system, but within the system. And then I just had this one renegade psychologist i would love in retrospect to know what his story was uh, like what his deal was because he said some things that i don't know if the institution would have approved of namely which is the title of my book is he told me this phrase which was sin bravely it's a phrase from martin luther the doctrine of peccafortiter uh, but the phrase is sin bravely in order to know the forgiveness of God. And his advice to me, this psychologist, was the best thing that you can do for your faith is to stop thinking that God's going to punish you. He was like, go sin all the sins that you want to sin. And I was like, what are you telling me that I'm going to be a murderer? I'm just, I'm like, just going to go. And he's like, is that what you want to do? You want to murder people? You want to rob stores? You'd probably get caught. It probably wouldn't be a good idea. And I was like, all right. So basically he was essentially saying, follow your own conscience and know that you were loved. 
which was really the bridge that I needed to get to my next phase. Um, What did that do for you when you're hearing that coming from someone who's presumably a Christian and also a therapist, so someone with that authority in your life, you've checked yourself into a facility. What is that doing for you when you hear those words? Like even now I kind of like feel it in my body. I like, I wouldn't have used this language, but I guess my feeling was, fuck yeah, thank you. (laughs) You know, it was, um, you know, he also said other things like, I remember one day he just said to me, you could leave if you want. I mean, and I knew that. I I, I didn't think I was trapped. But uh, his thing was, you could just stop worrying about it. You could just let it go. And I was like, huh, I I could. Like he just, you know, it had a kind of a zen feeling, like the feeling of he was able to kind of, you know, do a little jujitsu with, my mind, you know, and I, if I had been at a regular facility, it wouldn't have worked. You know, I would have gone, ah, you know, I needed somebody within the system to give me this permission in a way, which I used. (laughs) It's funny you say that because that's one of the things that we have talked about on the podcast that sometimes you need to address the script and you can only address the script if you're coming from an informed place. Like with our fear of hell episode, we did exactly that. We pulled out the the Bible verses, which neither of us believe anymore, Great. but we pulled them out and we spoke to the script and said, well, here's the inconsistencies, Great. et cetera. Great. I, so wonderful. I feel like that's the first thing. That's the very first thing, you know, is working within it. And like my kind of emergence or getting beyond the fundamentalism, I had to go through all these phases. I went through years where I thought of a Christian God as a woman. I was like, if I can, like, it just, I was able to picture God as being merciful and kind if it were a woman. So I needed that before I moved, you know, and then I justified that because the Bible doesn't say there's gender. I can think of it in any ways. There's images of God as a mother bird. I'm just going to use that image, you know, but right. I, I had to take step by step by step. You also had this Bethany character in the book, this psychologist or counselor, whatever she was. And she, in a lot of ways, I felt was like an archetype of this judgmental, refusing to listen kind of Christian. But I always, I, I also was thinking, did this person live inside your head as well? Is this why you resonated with her? Not in a good way, but why she had so much power? That's a great, that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the certainty. It was that Christian that is this, that is very certain. Um, and I think I might've said this in the book, but she's the kind of pretty that passes as kind. You know, it was like, if you have soft features and people are like, oh, she's very sweet. She's very kind. No, that's a, it's, it's a look. (laughs) She has delicate features. Um, uh, Yeah. The thing that was so infuriating to me that I think probably is somewhat universal about being in a facility like this, where you've, you've chosen for these people to, to be your healers was when there was such a clear denial of what I felt was the reality. I got very, I would get very sick to my stomach and would be unable to keep food down because of anxiety, fear of going to hell. And Bethany had made the decision that I was a young woman in college who was worried about being attractive to boys. And so had bulimia and was dealing with personal body images and brought a mirror into the room and had me look at myself. And I just kept saying that I'm so not concerned about being pretty right now. Like (laughs) I got eternal stakes going on. Like I'm like, but every denial was a confirmation to her of her thesis, which was, oh, she's got really big body issues. She can't even admit that she's got any body issues. To me, she reminded me a lot of the sort of pastoral 
and you know whether they were actually in a pastoral position or whether they were just leaders in the church that knew what was better for us than what we were telling them. So you, I could just feel your frustration. No, that's not what's going on here. It's this. Oh, no, let me tell you. And that's what happens a lot in church, that people tell us, here's your problem. Here's what's wrong with you. Here's what you think. Here's who you are. And I thought in that way she was an archetype uh, for evangelicalism. Yeah. Yeah, and like not seeing, like I always felt like I could see the textbook that she was reading when she was looking at my face, you know, like little bullet points that she wasn't seeing what was before her. Leading up to the time where you have checked yourself into the Born Again Nuthouse, um, mm-hmm. are you actually connecting the dots and thinking, my mental health is really affected by this thing in my life, this drive, this, you know, the, the, the Jesus guilt, the Jesus, you know, the whole thing being central to to basically your existence and making sure you save others. Or are you just, are you completely not connecting that and you're just thinking, oh, maybe there's something just with me that I need to get right with God. What's happening for you there? At that point, I had not dared to let myself think anything that could be considered blasphemous or doubting. So my whole thing was something's broken within me and and I got to solve it. I got to solve it. If I'm going to live a normal life, everyone else manages. Everyone else is standing up and putting one foot in front of the other with this knowledge that we're in this sort of jeopardy. And I can definitely tell you from from doing this podcast and the people that connect with us, people we've interviewed, the people within our community, you know, groups online, and your experience is really common. Yours was probably just a lot more outward and you sought help or you were forced to seek help. But this is such a, a common story that people's mental health is so deeply, deeply affected that 20, 30, 40 years on, they're still dealing with the general head fuckery that has happened to them as a result of this belief system. Oh, yeah. It's a prison of the mind, isn't it? That's what happens. And and just even listening to Maggie talk, it's this pushing down, this pushing down, this refusing to allow yourself to to question, to process. And no wonder it explodes out the side like some <laughs> sort of mental hernia, yes, which is what happened to you totally. in a movie. Totally. I think, and the other thing looking back is I had started having sex with my boyfriend uh two months before I saw that movie. So I think like, and, and I had justified it. I was like, I was like, well, we're married in God's eyes. You know, God doesn't care about a legal ceremony. God, I'm married to Chris. We're married. We're married, whatever I call him in the book. But, uh, it, you know, we're, we're, we're all good. So I had like, it was like a house of mental cards. I had built up all of these justifications for drinking, for swear, you know, like all of the things. And then I, saw that movie and it's like it just all came unpinned and I stopped all of my sin like all of my sin bravely you know I mean I wasn't sinning bravely at that point I mean I had stopped all of my sins right after that you, you did refer before that when you did leave the facility you did set out on your campaign to sin bravely I did you did, and you did it with gusto, so good I on did. you. But talk us through that. What were your next steps? Because this is a great story, but how did it happen? How did you leap off into your life of sin, and where did it go from there? Oh, let's see. Now I'm, I am <laughs> feel a little bit circumspect about what I say my parents, and but I will say that I really did. It's it wasn't. I didn't just say it for a book or you know anything like. For the next really probably decade, um, but especially at the beginning, like especially right after college, I was like, I am not going to stop myself from doing anything. And if I want to do it, I am going to do it. So after I graduated from college, well, I worked as a stripper for a while. There were some stripping days. There's, you know, uh, you know, who I dated, who I had sex with, some drug use. But each... Oh, we don't, we don't judge you, Maggie. 
we've, we've done all of that. Um, I was never a stripper, Troy. Were you? Uh, well, well. Uh, but I like I felt like it was it ultimately was the healthiest thing that I did. It really was. It like it was like exposure therapy to the thing that I thought was the worst thing. And and there was never like I never had this feeling of, you know what I want to do? I want to be really unkind to somebody. You know, those weren't the sins that I wanted to to sin. I wasn't like, oh, you, you know what, I want to go physically assault the elderly or, you know, take food. You know, I I wanted to express myself and my sexuality, uh, but I would take, you know, a couple of steps forward and then, but I would just be then overwhelmed by fear that the Sin Bravely campaign had been ill-advised, that it was Satan that was luring me, you know, with biblical words, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, but I kept doing it. I, I, I think there was something in me that's like, this is the only way. It was yeah. pushing through something. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny, isn't it? Because a lot of people will leave fundamentalism. And I've used this analogy before. It's like a spring or a slinky that's sort of tied up really tight. And then it's sort of released <laughs> and it sort of goes bang and, you know, spreads out really wild. And then eventually over time, we sort of come back to a yeah, more yeah, moderate yeah. position. But I think there's a lot of people, I, I don't, I don't know whether for me, it was so much about testing the boundaries as much as being told you're not allowed to do this. And I had to find out for myself, am I allowed to do this? And, and a lot of the things that they said were bad and wrong. I mean, I joke, I'm a better Christian now than I was when I was a Christian in terms of, you know, the, the do nots, thou shalt nots. I, I, I don't <laughs> do anything anymore, right? Um, which, which is kind of funny. But there was a time there where, yeah, I, I just wanted to go out there and live it. And a lot of people do. But maybe for a different reason. To I you. definitely, I'm not sure. I when I think back about those days, I have I have great nostalgia for it. <laughs> you know, my my sin bravely campaign was a uh, wild. I don't know why this word came into mind. Profitable experience for me. <laughs> I mean, I made some money, but I mean, I but by profitable, I I meant uh, it, it was really what I needed to do. When you're engaging in, you know, those things that you'd wanted to engage in, you're sinning bravely, what's it doing to your head? Like, because you've you've obviously had this, up until then, a lifetime of don'ts, and all of a sudden you're doing the don'ts. And scrupulosity as well, right? That was the, the big Absolutely. word. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's it doing? And how do you overcome that? And I ask this because... Many of our listeners, you know, this is stuff they, they talk about, they they struggle with and try and connect of even, many, as I said before, many years on, the guilt of, of doing things. What's it doing for you and how do you deal with it? Yeah, I felt like I was definitely like a, a pendulum um, of just feeling kind of wild and free. I remember writing in my journal a phrase, I wrote this phrase a lot, I looked at this old journal recently but I was like it's like I want to bleed through it was like a kind of a violent you know like not show through but there was something um violent about the way that I was leading my life that that felt fantastic and exhilarating and heady but then the pendulum was just outright terror and, and it could turn on a dime, like, uh, like, I, you know, my heartbeat, you know, related to cocaine at times, but even without that, like having a, he a heartbeat that would be like, you know, that was excitement and, and, um, you know, something akin to exhilaration. And then it could turn into just horror terror in a moment by just a, a thought you know, you know what I mean? Like the, the physical thing would remain, but the tone could change in a moment. As Brian said a moment ago, it's very normal. And, you know, whilst you did the girl interrupted stage of actually going into facility, I think there's a lot of us that probably should have, 
um, or even can I question whether whether you should have? But again, you you see the value in that now. How did you resolve this, or have you resolved this? And what did you do with your Christianity? Was there was there a resolution? Was there a conclusion to this? I mean, I don't want to ruin the reveal of the book for anyone, but where did you come to, and and how did you get there? Say, like at the end of the book, at, you know, I definitely in my twenties had this kind of rebellion, I suppose, or rebellion isn't even the word. Um, I'm going to go with ecstatic revolt. I mean, I was just like, ah. And then after that, I moved to Los Angeles. I came out here to grad school. And I feel like the next phase was more intellectual and was more like, wait, what? What was I taught? It was finding Joseph Campbell and going, oh, so I don't even need to say that all of this is untrue. I can just say it's literally untrue, but that doesn't even, it's not even a slam. I don't have to give that all up. And that's when I really started thinking of God as a woman and then I moved, my next phase is, and I suppose it's my phase now, became very active in a Zen Buddhism community. Uh, I'm still a member of the same Zen center that I joined 20 years ago. Uh, just did a week silent retreat last week. Um, and one thing that I enjoy about Zen Buddhism is nothing to believe nothing to have faith in. There's no reincarnation. You know, it's sometimes it's called the religion of no religion. All it is, is if I sit and do this particular process and look at my mind waves, I can change my behavior and have a different experience of my life. Um, so I really love that. Um, but I would say like, I'm involved in a lot of different spiritual things. I'm part of a Tibetan Buddhist group and I'm a yoga practitioner, you know, so I, you know, I've heard the phrase, you can take the girl out of the church, you can't take the, you know, uh, but the church that I now have isn't a church of any sort of rules. Hey, Troy, I would like to give a huge shout out to our Patreon supporters. So you should, Brian, because we do love our Patreon subscribers. Our Patreon subscribers get a range of benefits, including free merch, access to our exclusive subscribers group, and a monthly live video call with us. All proceeds go towards the running and promotion cost of the podcast. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash IWATF or see our Linktree URL in the show notes. Hashtag fucking blessed. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I, I became... A Christian when I was seventeen, so hence teenage fundamentalist yeah. like Troy. Uh-huh. I was a spiritual person growing up. I didn't grow up in a spiritual household. I didn't grow up in a household that was connected to church. Mum and Dad had earlier been connected to a church, but decided, you know, hey, that wasn't for them later on. So I grew up in you know a fairly agnostic household. I think there was a, a spirituality that I sought out myself and I was trying to, to work it out. So I think fundamentalism for me came along at a time of searching and, you know, certainly trying to know myself, know my place in the world. But I often ask myself, now I've walked away from Christianity, don't believe it's there's any truth in it whatsoever, is am I still hanging on to a spirituality? Because I certainly do count myself as a spiritual person. And I find it very difficult to say that there is nothing else or there's not a connection between um, others and, you know, the earth and things like that. I feel a real connection to the earth. But I often ask myself, am I just trying to hang on to something to make it all make sense? Otherwise, there's no meaning. There's no sense. And I find that really hard. And it is a wrestle that I have Often, have you found in Zen Buddhism a place where you're satisfied, you're truly satisfied? Well, I would say, yeah, I, yes, like satisfied. Um, 
the, the nice thing about Zen Buddhism is there really is no meaning. Like there's no, I don't find echoes of Christianity in it. It doesn't feel like I'm hanging on to a system because there's no real system of comfort. It's, it's here and it's gone. It's here and it's gone. Can you be there? Can you be there? Um, what I think of as spirituality, I think is just the belief that my experience of the world can be changed by my viewpoint of the world. I think that's it. And I, you know, so I practice meditation so diligently because I've seen it affect my nervous system, my physiology and the way that I like the conversation I have with the world, you know, so that feels spiritual, but it doesn't seem like it's got like any particular clinging because there's no comfort as far as meaning that I found. Did you find that in your other expressions of spirituality, was there a compulsion that started to come up? In other words, was it sort of something inside of you trying to attach itself again in terms of what you, know, what you were calling scrupulosity, OCD? Have you had to work on that? It's a good question. I think I'm going to say no. I think I'm going to say it doesn't translate that it feels like something different, but I will have that scrupulosity, like not in relation to Buddhism, but like the guilt that I will feel when I do something that's hurtful to somebody is connected to terror. And I don't think other people have that. Um, so I think that's still my brain having scrupulosity that like, oh, I didn't invite somebody to a barbecue. I think most people would go, oh, I feel bad. I'm going to try not to do that again. I will have a physical feeling of I'm going to be punished. So I think that's where the remnants of it kind of lie. Because there seems to be, for me, when I was reading your story, I was resonating with it and I was thinking, okay, religion and mental health certainly is something that has been an issue for me in an ongoing way, but I haven't always labeled it. And that's why I said to you before, maybe some of the, uh, some others of us should have gone into an institution at some stage as well. I found that, especially when I was using substances, that I would sometimes have experiences that could be akin to a psychosis, but they were always religious. Ah, it was always yes. about spirituality because I had this belief that this was a, a genuine dimension and that there was a, a literal God or, you know, a literal devil out to get me. And that happened a number of times over my, my experience. But I do think that for me, there came a point where I had to say, it's, it's a yes or a no, it's an all or a nothing. And I think this is why some people are quite happy to go into a, an atheistic position where they just deny all kinds of spirituality because that's where sanity lies for them. And so that's why I was asking that question of you. H have you had to step away at times from religion entirely? Oh yeah. Like I, like the, the fear of being triggered by churches, by those hymns, by the, by even by Christmas carols, like I will not go, like there were years where I did not go into a church uh, in my in the book After Sin Bravely, I talk about a moment where at that point I was like, I will not go into a Christian church. Like that is off limits for me. But I had a rough time. Uh, it's the subject of this book. And I went into a Latino Pentecostal storefront church at a low point in my life and was treated so kindly. And I even like, like went down on my knees and they did the like hand on the head, but it, it had been years removed from such terror that I was able to go back and have a good experience. But I would say it was like 15 years that I was like, I will not. <laughs> And so where do you sit now then in terms of Christianity and Jesus and all that? Do you, are you open to it? Is it completely shut off? I, you know, I, my connection back to it now is through Thomas Merton, um, uh, Catholic Zen Thomas Merton, and uh, his biographer is a man named James 
Finley. And about six years ago, I got interested in James Finley's writing. He He's a mystic. He would call himself a mystic. And as far as I can tell, this is me speaking for him, but as far as I can tell, he doesn't view any of it as literal. Any of the Christian stuff is literal. It is all metaphor to describe um, being present in your life and letting your ego die and resurrect to a new kind of generosity. You know, like it's all so, and he's very poetic. So I've gone to see him on a number of occasions speak in Santa Monica and different places around me. And, uh, and he talks about Thomas Merton and his experience of working with Thomas Merton. And it makes me feel a little thread of connection and this feeling of it's not all awful. There were certain mystics throughout that the cross meant something deep and kind and was not a horror show that we had to believe in. <laughs> so, Maggie, you've you've had an incredibly rich career. You've had the privilege of working with many big names in Hollywood. You know, you've been a writer on one of the most incredibly successful shows. But what led you to, it was 2017, so it's a few years on from when you've had this experience of being in the psychiatric institution. A bit of time has passed. So what's led you in 2017 to go, I've got to write about this. And I've got to write about it in such an incredibly vulnerable and raw way. It's an incredibly honest and beautiful book in that you're inviting people into the the deepest, darkest, and also, you know, those lit corners of your life as well. So what was it that, that led you to go, hey, I've got to tell people about this? I, well, you know, for years I did, I, I produced a spoken word show through Comedy Central, and I would do personal essays about this about these times, about this issue, about sinning bravely, about my evangelical upbringing. Um, And then I wanted to put it all into one thing. And this might sound a little cliche, but I read Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar again. I had read it in college. Uh, But then in maybe 2013, I read it again. And I was like, I want to write my own bell jar. <laughs> uh, there were enough similarities and I was like, I want to put it into a traditional narrative structure. You know, it was four months of my life. Um, the bell jar covers a, kind of a similar period. So yeah, I was like, I wanted to have some form and to live on besides these audiences of, you know, a hundred people in Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, stories are so powerful. It's why we do the podcast, because giving people a connection to go, hey, you're not so fucked up. Like this stuff happened to me as well. And this is how I processed it. So that's what we love about books like yours, because they actually provide people with some security, a bit of a roadmap of one way that someone can navigate this space and navigate the complexities of it, but also for you to be able to tell people and this is how you keep going forward. Like this is a point in time where you make some decisions and then you build upon those decisions and that is how you navigate life. You've done that five years later, you've released your latest book, Easy Street, which really does talk about how do I get on with this stuff? And what's it? it's subtitled A Story of Redemption from Yourself. So you're talking about how do I deal with my fucked up self? So yeah. yeah. So what Easy Street, you know, is it a would you consider it a follow-on book from Sim Bravely in the story of your life? And how should people use it, I guess, to to you know navigate like they may have in Sim Bravely? Yeah, I, I do think it's a it's a follow-up book in some way. Well, uh, what precipitated writing it is I had a resurgence of my OCD, which had landed me in the hospital when I was 19. But this time it didn't have the theological content. <laughs> so when, when I was growing up, I, you know, the biggest sin was to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So I was like, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then that 
kind of imp of the mind just went blaspheme, blaspheme, blaspheme. Yeah. Fuck you. You know, like, but somehow that weird little OCD tick of don't say this word uh, researched in uh, 2017, right when Sun Bravely came out, which may have been coincidental, may not, but, uh, but at the same time that I had a resurgence of my OCD, uh, I became the legal guardian of a, a neurodiverse woman. So the, the story is kind of a, I think of it as a dark buddy comedy, me and this woman who became my charge for a while. When reading your book, the thing that I really connected with the most was it was the first time that I'd really seen anyone make that direct connection between mental health and spirituality and, or at least evangelicalism. And like I said, it was like reading a a regular deconstruction book that all of a sudden turned into Girl Interrupted. So I think it's really valuable. I don't know that there's, and look, there may be other books out there. I just haven't come across them, but I think it's really, really valuable. And I want to recommend the book to our audience. And we'll definitely put that and Easy Street into the show notes for people to find. But Maggie, what's next for you? Where where are you heading? Not just in terms of your spirituality, but in terms of your life. Well, um, I'm working on a new book uh, that will be, I want it to be the, the will be a third part. It'll be kind of uh, the trilogy. This third book is about, I think, about me coming into my own power, uh, about me being bolder and stronger and less of a people pleaser and uh, ready to be a boss lady. Um, uh, TV-wise, we're in the middle of the writer's strike here in Los Angeles. So it's been about two and a half months. It's looking like a, you know, may go towards to Labor Day. But uh, got shows that I'm pitching uh, once we can get that back up and going. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Definitely, Maggie. I, I mean, when you also... Look, that's the writer strikes. Not wonderful. Let me be clear about that. But um, <laughs> when you do look back about how you've started this journey of writing, of essentially journaling your life, and do you consider that it's cost you anything? What does it cost you, or offset against that? What are the benefits of it? Cost and benefits. You know, I really enjoy a lot of the parts of writing. You know, you hear people complain about it. The best part of writing is when it's over. I don't know that I feel that way. And especially lately, I've really felt like a great pleasure in my life is to go somewhere that's lovely and write and meditate and create. Uh, So I've really loved this process of kind of journaling that turns into... Uh, books and I write for psychology today so it's that feeling of like your life is grist for the mill which I love like that's a really gives me a sense of purpose that's been valuable um I mean the biggest downside of the writing thing not true with the books but true with television is that so much doesn't actually get to air. So there's so much that I've written that, you know, pilots that haven't gotten shot, you know, so there's that part of the industry has a, has a real sense of um, it just disappears. It's like do it just uh, disappears when it doesn't um, have production behind it. So it's one thing that makes uh, books and articles feel like, I have more agency. Hollywood's a bit of a lottery. It's a fickle beast. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> not, not that we know. I mean, we're certainly not Hollywood, but, you know, we can see that from the outside. Uh, yeah. No, we're, we're, we're not Hollywood. We're Melbourne. <laughs> we are. Yes, well, Melbourne, you know, all of, all the actors, all the great, all the actors are coming from Australia. You know what, you know what my, uh, my stepdaughter, who is a casting director, says about this trend for Australian actors, male actors, not female, to be taking over these parts is she thinks that uh, Aussies are are more traditionally masculine than the uh, 
American men here. <laughs> We're fairly manly men. We're bringing in the real men from Australia. <laughs> Even the great actors who aren't Australian, they might have been born in the US or the UK or New Zealand, we still claim them as our own too. That's You should, yeah, you should. That's right. We, we gather them in. Any manly man should just be, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an Aussie. Well, here we are. He's from down under. <laughs> Troy, we are manly men. <laughs> yeah, this is why I've stayed in Australia and haven't been exported, to be honest. <laughs> enough self-deprecation Maggie we are so glad to have had you on the show thank you so much for for your book thank you so much for talking with us as I said we're going to put all the details for connecting with you and connecting with your work into our show notes but is there anything that you wanted to call out any way that people can can find you and find out about you Oh, yes, I have a website, maggieroauthor.com. That has all my info. Brian, anything you want to fire at Maggie before we take off? No, I reckon we we could definitely talk for a very long time, but time is up. However, Maggie, it has been an amazing chat and so interesting. And again, just a shout out to you about your vulnerability and putting it out there about just how hard this stuff can be, but also how rewarding it can be when you put in the hard work to go forward and put in the enjoyable work of sinning bravely. I mean, what a (laughs) fantastic thing to do. I'm all up for that campaign, sin bravely. Get out there, people, and you can certainly have a bit of fun while you're healing. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> so th- thank you guys. Ag- no, thanks again Maggie. Great chat. If you'd like to connect with the I was a teenage fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes. 